The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're elevating their businesses, teams, and themselves to add more value, and so can you. Welcome to the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. If you are looking for ways to elevate success while contributing to a better world, you'll want to listen for the next hour. Now here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper and delighted to welcome you again to another edition of the Business Elevation Show on Voice America. Um, I'm delighted to be here today. I've got a wonderful guest to talk with you, uh, Wasim Khan MBE. We're going to talk about the business of sport. Um, before I introduce um, Wasim, we're going to um, have a, uh, just want to say a thank you actually to uh, my guest last week. I want to thank Rob Brown, whose show we repeated last week on uh, on the show as we had a UK holiday. He was talking about reputation. Um, also, uh, the week before, I want to say thank you to Derry Llewellyn Davis of Business Growth International, who interviewed me actually on the magic of engagement. We had a great conversation and uh, some good feedback on that show. So thank you again to Derry. So let's talk about cricket and talk about um, Wasim Khan and the business of sport. Uh, what can we learn about elevating our businesses from this uh, fascinating world? Now, uh, Wasim is the CEO of Leicestershire County Cricket Club, and he's also the first British-born Pakistani to become a professional cricketer in England. In 2005, he was also recruited as uh, Chief Executive Officer by Lord Mervyn King, the former Governor of the Bank of England, uh, to plan and deliver a project called Chance to Shine. This was a cricket education program for state schools, and the charity itself raised £55 million in nine years and delivered um, support to over two and a half million state school children, including a million girls. His autobiography, Brimful of Passion, won the coveted prize of Wisdom Book of the Year in 2006. He was awarded an MBE for services to cricket and communities um, back in 2013. Um, he has uh, an executive MBA from Warwick Business School, where he delivers leadership um, programs and lectures there as well as becoming CEO of Leicestershire County Cricket Club in early 2005. And he's currently the only South Asian CEO across any professional sporting club in the UK. And he's um, joined the board of Sport England in October 2016 with responsibility for distributing over a billion pounds across sport in England. So a huge welcome to my guest today, Wasim Khan. Thank you, Chris. Lovely to see you. I'm actually in the same room today. Oh, we are. We're huddled, huddled near the, micro, the microphone. Yeah. It's quite cosy, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's find out a little bit about Wasim and uh, the business of sport. Now, I believe you came from you know, really quite humble beginnings in, in Birmingham in England. Um, yeah. And- uh, what's yeah. life like as a Pakistani boy growing up in England? Well, my parents came over to uh, the UK in the 60s from Kashmir. 
and uh, all came over to to the UK for a better life. And uh, my uncles and everybody else followed shortly in the 60s. Um, but, you know, in terms of sort of the, the primary kind of aim, I guess, for my father at that stage was to try and earn enough money to send home as well as try and feed us and, and keep us going. Um, but, you know, Birmingham was very kind of densely populated with, with the South Asian community. There's a big Afro-Caribbean community in Birmingham as well, but also a big Irish community in the 60s and the 70s. So we, we grew up in quite a cosmopolitan area in those days where there was there's people from every background, you know, who, you know, we had a black family living next door to us from Jamaica. On the other side, we had an Indian family living next door to us. Opposite us, we had two Irish families. So there was a real community feel about um, about the sort of the people we had around us. But slowly but surely, sort of in the 80s and the 90s, that, that changed very rapidly. Uh, there was a bigger influx of the South Asian community who came into Small Heath. Um, and slowly but surely, we saw sort of the black families and, and, and the white families starting to move out. Uh, and now it's probably 99.9% um, Pakistani in terms of its its sort of community feel. So it's changed very much, um, you know, in terms of how it is. Um, we didn't have a lot of things going on around us. We had no clubs. Um, we There was a sort of two secondary schools, which we all kind of, you know, most children went to uh, from across Small Heath uh, in the area. Um, we spent most of our times either playing soccer, uh, football, or playing cricket. And they were really our only two pastimes. And we wielded the summers away, playing cricket, putting crates in the middle of the streets to, to form wickets. Um, and, and that was it. Um, you know, the, our parents came over for a better life. Um, there was... Um, a real push on the academic side. So, you know, for, you know, we, we, there's all this stereotypical sort of, you know, wanting to become a lawyer or a doctor. And that was certainly a point of credibility for Asian families. And uh, my family would push me in the same direction. But for me, from quite an early age, from the age of 12 or 13, I, I knew what I wanted to do. And it certainly didn't involve academia. Uh, and for me, it was about sport, uh, cricket in particular. And I set my mind to it from a very, very young age. And I remember playing recreational cricket at a young age and my family kind of saying you know what are you doing you know what well, why are you doing this is going to get you nowhere in life and when are you going to get a proper you know you, when you're older you need to get a proper job professional cricket will not pay your mortgage it will not help you in life and and that was it was at the stage where sport wasn't deemed to be a career particularly amongst the south asians um, in england and um, it certainly wasn't an aspiration for my parents um, that i would go in that direction when i was young mm. do they think you have a proper job now well it's interesting the first game i was actually on tv at the age of 20 and i remember going home and my uncle said to me yeah i saw you on tv today when are you going to get a proper job it's <laughs> <laughs> uh, honestly what happened uh, and, and the fact that i didn't perform very well on t tv you know and then having that killer blow hit me when i got home as well i just kind of shook my head and i thought well maybe they just never never understand cricket and and to be honest they never did because i don't come from a sporty family so you know the idea of wanting to pursue a career in sport was just never part of sort of the psyche within within my household or, or within my sort of relatives households who used to live nearby mm. so um but here we are now and you've uh, <laughs> obviously done you know, a huge amount with your sport um, but it's interesting you're just saying that about um, in the area that you were brought up which is now 99.9% Pakistani. I mean, do you are you finding it, it was was the world more cosmopolitan, or, or you know have we now 
become more segregated over the years? I, I, I think we definitely have. And look, I, I'm, so. I'm quite outspoken as a, as a Pakistani Muslim living in, in England. I still think there's, you know, integration is very much a two-way process. I think that there's been a lot of pushing um, for the communities to become a lot more integrated, particularly the Pakistani community. Um, but there's nothing really coming back in the other direction. And what happened slowly but surely, pockets of immigrants came in. And, you know, what you still have in many areas, and, and you know, bearing in mind it's 2017, is you, you still have that ghettoization feel um, about a lot of areas, a lot of communities. Initially, they were created as a home away from home. Uh, to feel safe. So you had pockets of the African Caribbean community in places like, you know, Brixton in South London or Handsworth in Birmingham, or sort of, you know, sort of assembling there as a, as a point of safety. And you had the same thing, you had in Indian communities in certain parts, Irish communities in certain parts. But, but slowly but surely, what they did was that they started to integrate a lot more. But the Pakistani community uh, just hasn't. Um, you know, for example, 95% of the Pakistanis in Birmingham live in five inner city wards, mm. you know, and, and that's based on pa Birmingham having the biggest Pakistani community in the country. So that just tells you the type of potential issues that that can actually bring. Mm. And, and you say it's not two way. I can kind of understand how, how can the rest of, you know, the society integrate more and, and give more to... Yeah, I, I think there's a real willingness from outside of these areas to try and try try and encourage, you know, um, integration. But but I think that there's got to be a willingness, and I and I generally don't believe there's a willingness. You know, my parents' generation, like I say, created safety hubs, but the next generation hasn't really moved on, mm. and as much as it should have done. You know, there's there's huge amounts of sort of illiteracy across the areas um, the Indian communities have actually moved forward where education was a real base for them whereas I think that with the Pakistani community it was always about how can we earn quick money and and you know and you know how can we send money back you know how can we get rich quick and I think there's very much that type of mentality whereas I think the Indian community were a lot broader in their thinking and education was right at the heart of moving forward and progressing in life and and it, it saddens me that, you know, we are where we are now. And I think that some of the issues you see happening around the world um, and, and particularly around England and, and the issues that you've had around sort of terrorism and radicalization and various other things. Uh, when you've got the youth at the level that you do have with no ambitions and no aspirations to do anything and, and don't really see the point of life and don't really see where their life is heading. And you've got willingness from the other side, who people who see them as 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 ready prey that they can sort of go and try and uh, and and place their doctrine and try and brainwash them into thinking a certain way. Then you've got a real issue, mm -hmm. and so it doesn't surprise me with a lot of the issues that are now developing, uh, particularly around England, you know, and the well documented cases that you know it's primarily the Pakistani communities um, where a lot of these issues are, are emanating from. Sounds like you have a, an important role to play. Well, I hope so, you know, and, and, you know, I go back and speak quite a lot. Um, I don't live in Small Eath anymore, but my mum does and a lot of my family do. But, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to, you know, go back and talk to these young people as a role model to say, Do you know what, actually, it's, it's not cool to leave school with nothing. Mm. It's not cool to wander around with your mates and, you know, smoke whatever you want to smoke in cars and, and think that's quite cool to do. It's not cool not to have any aspirations in life. And, you know, I'm a living example that 
actually once I was committed and focused towards something, it got me out. You know, I traveled the world playing professional sport. I live, I lived the dream and I've continued to live the dream because I've stayed involved in something that I was passionate about from the age of 12. I'm now 46 and I'm still doing what I love doing. You know, you wake up in the morning and I think I'm that 1% perhaps that actually absolutely loves what they do on a daily basis. I'm not going to work to pay the mortgage uh, or, or pay for the next holiday or pay for the next car. Yes, all those things come with it. But primarily, I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing because I just love what I do. Yeah. And I'm very fortunate. And I count my blessings with that. Were you, um, you know, reading about you, you know, you're somebody who did have that dream, but you also, you're prepared to put yourself out big time to get it, weren't you? You know, the, you, you traveled, you sent several buses to get to um, cricket training. And you were actually, you know, the first British born Pakistani to play professional cricket. So that you were... You know, leading the way, really. Yeah, I, I was. I was very fortunate because I was spotted in a playground by a teacher who had an interesting cricket, uh, and it was pretty. You know, there's a lot of luck involved in that, and and I think that, um, you know, had that teacher not spotted me or had any interest in cricket, I probably wouldn't have pursued it because I would have had no drive. I wouldn't have known what to do and where to go. And I remember him, the teacher, saying to me, he said, "Look, you know, have you have you heard of Warwickshire?" And I said, "No, sir." And he said, well, I think you've got something. Where have you learned to play cricket? And I said, just watching it on TV. He said, right, OK, we're going to do something about this. So he took me for trials at the age of 13. And um, I was the only state school boy there. All the other boys, there was 13 other boys there. They're all from independent schools. You know, their mum and dads were getting their bags out for them and carrying them into the, into the um, indoor cricket school. And I was walking in with a teacher who'd had to give me a pair of whites and boots and and everything, all the kits, because I didn't have anything. I'd never played hardball cricket before. And I went into those nets and, you know, that's the power of sport. I had a bat in my hand and I thought I was, you know, better than anybody else. And um, all my inferiority complex went from being in an alien environment, in an all-white environment, which I hadn't been used to. Uh, but the interesting education for me was on the way home where he, he drove me past certain points. And he said, right, this is where you will have to get off for your second bus this is where you get off for your third bus and this is where you get on for your first bus. And he said, right, next week you're going to make this journey yourself. Considering I'd never been on a bus before, uh, it was a major thing for me. But he said, this is part of your education. Mm. And he, he said, it'll make you hungry for success. And interestingly, um, I did that. And I, I became, I was the only one out of that group of 14 that, that went on and become a pro cricketer. Wow. Uh, and I think because it meant a lot more to me. Yes. And, and it was the be all and end all for me. Yes. Whereas a lot of those boys now are working in the city in London and doing various things. Uh, for me, I didn't have that. And that's a really, it's a very interesting, one, isn't it? It's the same it seems to be the same with professional football that those kids often who you know, don't have so much uh, when they start off life, um, they it's almost they they have to be be successful to succeed. And it drives them on more. And others mm. have many, you know, so many different options. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think that you, you have this innate um, feeling within yourself that actually what you're sacrificing is a hell of a lot, and you know, not making it isn't an option mm. because the reality is is that what lies on the other side isn't great. So if you've got a skill or a talent um, in in one thing, which is sport, for example, then you know you you almost you, you commit to it you know, as much as you can to, to try and say, well, there's no way I'm going to fail in this. I have to make it. And for me, it was, my, you know, my father passed away at the age of 15. So it was my mum and my sister. And so for me, that there was a bigger picture. And that was that, you know, uh, I was doing it for them as well because I needed to make a living. So there was a whole, all these things went round in your head in terms of why 
it was important and why I needed to make it as a professional cricketer because I'd already invested so much time and effort into it that um, failure wasn't an option for me. Yeah, uh, we've, just, we've got, just got about a minute and a half till we go to commercial break, but um, just just to share with us what you did achieve with your cricket career. Yeah, I was very fortunate. I, I played um, at, at a place called Warwickshire County Cricket Club, which was one of probably the one of the most successful teams um, in in England at the time. So we won the treble in 1994. So we won three trophies in a year out of four. And we won two trophies in 1995 and we won one in 93. So we won six out of a possible, I think it was nine or ten trophies. So we had a successful period and, you know, I, I was very, very fortunate in the fact that I was part of that and walked away with a championship winner's medal uh, and a one-day medal as well. And, you know, many distinguished people had played all their careers playing county cricket and never, never achieved that. And I was just very, very fortunate to have done that. Fantastic. We're going to go to commercial break now, and after the break, we'll find out a little bit more about um, uh, the work around uh, Chance to Shine that um, Wasim did with um, the CEO of uh, the Bank of England, and uh, we'll also find what it's like having a tea with the Queen. Um, but then, then we'll go into uh, you know, some of the key elements of uh, we want to talk around around business and uh, sports. I'll be back with you again in just a couple of minutes. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One to one mentoring and coaching facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Wasim um, Khan, MBE. We're talking about the 
uh, the business of sport. Well, we've been talking about um, some of the inspiring things about um, Wasim's childhood and his development into being a, a professional cricketer. And we thought it would be an appropriate moment, because there'd be a lot of people from different countries and uh, listen to this show, uh, to really just mention you know, what cricket is. So uh, what is cricket? Crikey, I guess the, the nearest comparison that ever gets drawn is is a type of baseball, but not quite. So, you know, in, in cricket, you kind of have two teams of of 11. Um, you have one side that fields and um, the other side that bats. Um, and, yeah, I, I guess it, it has various rules in terms of how you can score runs. I guess in baseball, you have home runs and um, people running to various bases. In cricket, you have a similar thing, but you run, in, you run straight. So it's over 22 yards. So you, you have somebody bowling the ball. So in baseball, you have a pitcher. In cricket, you have somebody who actually bowls a ball. And it might be worth actually at this stage, you know, people out there actually Googling it mm. and, and typing in cricket, C-R-I-C-K-E-T, and, and sort of seeing it in action. Um, and then if you, if you hit the ball, say a home run, uh, without it bouncing and going over the rope, then you get six runs. And if it, you hit it along the ground over the rope, you get four runs. And in between, you know, you can run ones and twos, which is similar to, I guess, going from one base to or running two bases. So uh, I guess it's, um, yeah, th- there's a lot of rules involved in cricket. Um, and, you know, you see a lot of people who see it being quite complicated. It can play, be played over one innings or over two innings, uh, but you don't have more than two innings. Uh, in a game, and I know in baseball, you you can have quite a few innings in terms of both teams. Um, and there's two types of games. There's a, a one-day game where you, you end up having a result after one day, and you play, and and um, you, you sort of have one innings each. And there's a result at the end of it. Or you have the longer format, which is played over five days. And I think this is where particularly Americans find it very hard to understand that you can play five days of a sport and have no result. <laughs> At the end of it. So you can actually have a draw at the end of it. It's a very strategic game. Um, requires a lot of self-discipline, but also a lot of courage because you've got a, a hard cricket ball similar to a baseball coming at you at 90 miles an hour. It's a bit harder than a baseball. It's, it's surrounded in a, in a very hard, shiny red leather. And it does hurt if, if it does strike you on the body. You do have protective gear. But, um, but yeah, so... In a nutshell, um, that's sort of a roundabout sort of idea of, of explaining cricket, but please do um, Google it and, and see what you make of it. Yeah, it's, it's kind of fascinating, isn't it, today with the technology we have here. People mm. listen to this show in over 50 countries every every month. Um, so you know, there are some shows which, you know, some countries are listening to this, if you're from India or Pakistan or South Africa or Australia <laughs> or the West Indies, you know, cricket is something that you're brought up and you, you know, live with. But um, yeah. In other countries, like over here, you know, I've seen baseball and I've seen American football, but they're quite alien when I watch them for the first time. It's like, oh, what's going on here? Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, so um, thank you, thank you for that. And just tell us a little bit about Chance to Shine and what that was about, and that kind of led you to this MBE, didn't it? Yeah, it, it did. It was really bizarre, actually. One day I got a phone call. Um, when I finished playing cricket, like most sports people, you get to the edge, end of your career and uh, unless you've played for your, your country, you're kind of scratching your head thinking, well, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? I, I'd never gone to university because I'd gone over to Australia every winter to play club cricket over there. Um, and, you know, I, I, all I did was I, I wrote to loads of schools and said, look, you know, can I come in and do some coaching? cricket coaching with local kids in small heath and went back to where my grassroots where i grew up uh, to try and sort of i guess 
help raise the aspirations of young kids and and also provide some cricket coaching and skills training to them. And then after about a year I was, of doing that, I was, I was sort of starting to spread my wings in a lot more schools and a lot of schools saying, you know, we'd love to have you in. I got this call out of the blue from a lady one day and she said, are you Wazim Khan? And I said, yes. She said, I've got Mervyn King, the, the, the governor of the Bank of England on the line for you. Who'd like to talk to you? And I was thinking, crikey, well, what does he want with me? You know, my my uh, my economics had never been great at school, and I couldn't quite understand what he was going to learn from me. But uh, very bizarre. He's probably too clever for any of my friends. So I thought, you know, it's got to be true. So anyway, I said, yeah, happy to be put through to him. He came on the other end of a line, and he said, um, "This is um, my name's Mervyn." He said, um, "Your name keeps getting mentioned from a lot of people that I speak to." He said, um, "I've got this vision." about trying to get cricket back into state schools because I think it's a wonderful team sport. And he, th- he said, I think kids are missing out on vital educational opportunities by not taking part in structured competitive team sports such as cricket. And he said, your, your learning should not end start and end in the classroom. You learn so much about yourself by playing in a, in a, in a team sport. Will you come and see me? following day I got on a train from Birmingham, went to Threadneedle Street, the home of the Bank of England, um, went and I had a com- had a coffee with Mervyn King about the vision, and he said, "Look, you know, we, we set up the charity, and um, we're we, we're going to run this program." He said, "We need an ops director." Initially, he said, "We'd like you to be the ops director." So, so could you come up with a business plan? And bearing in mind, I'd, I'd never seen a business plan in my life. I, I kind of did what as good all good people do and got straight onto Google when I got home and, and Googled how do you write a business plan and, and sort of gained a few ideas about how I was going to do it. And then we kind of carried on talking and, you know, he said, look, I think we should, we're going to need to raise a lot of money. And I said, well, look, can we potentially have, have a goal of trying to raise a million, a million pounds? And he said, well, why don't we try and raise 50 million? <laughs> and I was thinking, crikey, 50 million. No charities ever raised 50 million in sport before. And he said, no, no, we can do it. He said, we'll raise 25 million privately and I'll get the government to match the other 25 million. So the next day he, he knocked on the door of Gordon Brown, uh, who lived at number 11 Downing Street as the chancellor of the Exchequer and said, um, you know, explained what we were trying to do, raise 25 million privately for this um, cricket education program in state schools and came back, rang me the following day and said the, the government have agreed to it. Uh, and we'll get cross-party support if the governments do change. So off we went on our own merry way, and I put a business plan together. Uh, we set a goal of, of reaching 2 million children across a third of state schools in this country, which is about 7,000, and uh, to raise the 50 million. Uh, and our aim was very simple, and that was to try and deliver structured coaching and competition programs into, into schools by linking sc- uh, local cricket clubs to local schools. And we did that right across the country, um, you know, and really started to gain a huge amount of traction, a huge amount of PR. You know, we had various sports coming to us saying, look, how do we replicate the model? And we had, we had, a, we had a sustainable model set up where for us, um, you know, we did a huge amount of teacher training. So we put a lot of time and money into re- creating cricket related resources that were in line with the national curriculum. So, for example, in maths, they looked at the angles of various shots. In geography, they looked at the demographics of certain cricket-playing nations. So we created all this, these resources that would link in with the national curriculum mm. so we could make it more sustainable. And we made it fun and enjoyable. And um, sort of nine years later, when I left Chance to Shine, we'd raised £55 million, pounds, um, reached 2.5 million children who'd never played cricket before in 11,000 state schools, of, and of which, you know, we celebrated our millionth girl in, in the ninth year that I was there, which was incredible. Brilliant. 
brilliant. And, uh, and then you had private dinner with a Quaker. Uh, I did. It was during the time at Chance of China, actually, in 2013. I got this letter and um, he sat on my breakfast bar for about two days when my wife finally said, you know, do, do you not think you should open it? So I opened it and he started with the words. It had 10 Downing Street on the top, a cabinet office sort of stamp on it. I was thinking, crikey. And he said, the prime minister has asked me to inform you that you've been um, nominated for a, uh, an MBE for your services to cricket and communities. So, of course, it was just a surreal feeling yeah. and um, getting that letter. And, and then there's an un- unwritten rule that you can't say anything for six weeks to anybody. Um, and so I had to wait six weeks before they formally announced the honours list. But quite incredibly, about two weeks after I received that letter, I got another. I got an email from the cabinet office saying, each year we ask two people to come and tell their story to the media. And the day that the honours list is released, would you come and do it? So I trotted off to Whitehall, um, um, sort of near Westminster. And on the day the honours list was released, I, I, there was about 50 media there from Sky and BBC and all the broadsheets, everybody. And I told my story to the media uh, about how I'd got um, the award and my background and the work with the charity, et cetera, et cetera. And then just when you thought it couldn't get any better, about three weeks later, and they say things happen in threes, but I got a formal letter from um, the the honours um, sort of office saying each year we select three people to have a private lunch with the Queen and we'd be honoured if you would accept. Yeah. So, of course, you know, you say yes. And then sort of I went, um, I had lunch, a private lunch with the Queen. She sat on my right or, or actually put it right I sat on her left for about two and a half hours over lunch and it was amazing before I went in the butler said look for 10 minutes she won't she won't speak to you because she always speaks to the person to her right first yeah. after 10 minutes she'll turn to you and then she'll have a conversation with you mm-hmm. and just like regular as clockwork within 10 minutes she turned around and said to so tell me about chance to shine so I sat there and talking to her about the program um, she was intrigued to find out about what it cost um, traveling on 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 the on the trains to come from London to Birmingham and Birmingham to London, she was fascinated by the fact that as working at a charity, I'd buy two singles and save thirty pounds. So she found that fascinating, and she 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 kind of kept looking at me quizzically and say, "Really? Do, do you really save that much?" And I was like, "Yeah, you do actually." But um, but it was amazing. So it was it was an incredible experience, sort of two and a half hours with the Queen, and um, I remember leaving Buckingham Palace and getting into my car on a high, and then I switched my phone on. The first message that came up was my wife saying, don't forget his parents' evenings tonight. And that, and that was my, you know, sort of brought me back down to earth and reality again. But uh, it, it was an amazing experience. Yeah, fantastic. So tell us about what's the, um, you know, the role that you currently have at Leicester Cricket? What's, what's the role of a CEO in that sport? Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's the role of a chief executive, I guess, across football and and um cricket most sports rugby in this country is that you know you are pretty much responsible for almost everything on the ground so everything from ground development work to doing negotiations with players and their agents on contracts to um all operational and safety matters um you have big catering operations that you have going um commercial work um so a big part of ours is sort of the whole commercial element um and a big, big elements community as well. And then, of course, not forgetting what goes on on the field. So, you know, for us, you know, I, my business plan was based around the four C's, which were customers, cricket, community and commercial. And that was really our focus. And that pretty much epitomizes, you know, the four business areas um, involved in, in a sport like cricket. Mm. 
Excellent. And, and so, so those those are your sort of key um, kind of key sort of areas. But so, would you, would you describe that? And we talked about the definition of this interview as the business of sport. Yeah. Are those the, the the sort of four key areas for anybody who's working in any kind of uh, sporting senior leadership role yeah absolutely Uh, and and you know when when you are based on the on the cricket ground um you know or you're based in a sporting arena you know the thing that hits home to you is that you are responsible for everybody in that ground Mm. Uh, and you know the, the difference between you ending up standing in a court because something goes drastically wrong is is your safety manager so you spend a huge amount of time looking at you know the health and safety around sporting grounds in terms of arenas, structures, everything else that goes on. But the business really is, I mean, for us, it's a slightly more challenging area because we're a seasonal sport. We're not soccer or football in this country, which goes 12 months round. We are a six-month summer sport. So, you know, during um, the winter, you have all the challenges that go with any business. You know, we're not a, a multinational sort of size business. We are an SME. You know, we've got to turn over about six million pounds a year, but there's a huge amount of complexity in terms of the things you have to deal yeah. with within that sporting environment. So your job is never boring. Uh, there's things every single day that you will do which will be different and you'll be in a different area every single every single day of your time. And for me, you've got to manage your time very carefully. So I use something called the LMO model, which is leadership management operational. And um, I try and at the end of each week assess where I've spent the most time. And ideally, you know, I want to be 55, 60 percent in the leadership space. But I found in my first year in terms of trying to turn this club around, bearing in mind that I had five years of losses prior to me arriving. I probably spent 75 percent of my time in the operational space in the first six months trying to understand the business Um, and probably, you know, 15 percent sort of managing and and the sort of the other the rest of that time sort of leading mm-hmm. um and thankfully now it's moved the other way around but it, you know it's a lot of hard work and you know it's something that like you say you know you, you've got to roll your sleeves up and be involved in all across all of those areas yes and interesting that coming to the ground was like a lot of sort of traditional sporting grounds you're not on a greenfield site apart from a big green pitch you're surrounded by residential property so in terms of managing the relationship with the community you know, it's must be very, you know, important. Uh, yeah, sometimes, uh, abso- absolutely. And, and the, the engagement factor with the community is massive because, you know, we recently had floodlights installed. Now that there was some pushback from local residents, but, you know, we had to do a lot of consultation to try and alleviate any fears they had. So, you know, we've also set up a residence group because we are quite unique in the fact that we're in a, a densely populated area probably more so than any other sports ground in the country, you know, and so we have to take that into account. So last year we had an Elton John concert. We had 17,000 people turn up to the cricket club, but we only got granted the permission to do that because we had to set up a very clear transportation plan, a one-way system, which took us six months to kind of set up, you know, so so they're the sort of things that we've just got to deal with. Um, It's got its own challenges, but also fantastic opportunities to do a huge amount of things and and trying to get the the local residents on side, I think has been a massive, massive plus over the last 18 months. Okay. We're going to get to commercial break again now, and after the break, I want to get into some of the, you know, some of the lessons really uh, that you've had from your your business career that can maybe help others. You know, things like dealing with politics, because I know in sport that can be quite a, you know, challenge. Your tips around doing that, and your tips around, you know, ensuring you've got diversity, uh, you know, within a within a board or within a, within an organisation, and. Uh, 
also the best way you know to run a boardroom those sorts of things so yeah. um, let's uh, get into that into the next and, and final segment so i'll be back with you again in just a couple of minutes it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One-to-one mentoring and coaching facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. We're back again with Wasim Khan. We're talking about the business of sport, and I want to get straight um, into this now. Um, the politics it just seems to be something that is just so rife across uh, across sport. Uh, and um, I would say, you know, particularly rife as well seems to be in cricket over the last few years in the UK. How do you navigate the sort of political minefield when there is politics? Yeah, play? yeah look, uh, you know, sp- sport is no different to the business world. You know, and the fact that, you know, across any boardroom, whether, whether you're working within a team and you've got um, sort of a team leader or you've got or you're managing people, po- politics will always be around you. And, and I think, you know, cricket in terms of how it operates and sport is that, um, you know, you've, you've got to have a huge amount of self-awareness, I think, as a leader within sport. And, you know, I call it peripheral vision. So that, you know, a lot of the time, whilst you're heading in a direction, there'll be lots of people trying to derail you. 
from 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 various sides through personal vendettas or jealousy or whatever it might be or envy for for what you're achieving and a lot of the time it can be very subtle so you know understanding what is coming from your left and your right i think is very very important as part of sort of that whole self-awareness i think that's a really important point to make you had a lot of people about you know talking about leadership and the leadership space well Self-awareness, I think, is, is one of the biggest attributes that you need as a leader, both for yourself in terms of protecting yourself and understanding what's coming, but, but also safeguarding um, the well-being of people around you, which I think is, is sometimes missed within leadership, you know, because leadership sometimes, you know, the people with egos will operate um, through leadership and, and, and see it as an extension of them to, to, you know, exercise their control and power. Well, actually, what you have, you're a custodian, um, I think, um, at the helm of, of actually bringing about satisfaction and, and happiness for other people. If people are spending a lot of their time trying to go into the workplace, you, you have a, you're accountable for making sure that, you know, when they walk away from the workplace, that you don't negatively impact their lives. Mm. You know, they've got families, they've got kids at home. And, and I think it's having that sort of awareness about, about you is, is really, really important. Um, look, p- politics in 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 sport can as i say you know it doesn't just happen doesn't just emanate from the boardroom um you, you you get it from from people around you um and i think you've just got to be very very mindful of people's motives but i think you also need to be very very strong in your own convictions about what it is that you're trying to achieve and and staying very true to yourself because it is very easy to get derailed or people who will try and push you in a certain direction because they perhaps want to set you up for failure it sounds quite cynical, but it does happen, you know. So, you know, picking and choosing your allies is very, very important. You know, they always say when you when you when you take over as CEO, you know, scour the room in your boardroom and work out very quickly who your allies are going to be and who are the ones that you need to to keep an eye on um, and hopefully try and win over and get onto your side. You, you'll manage to do that sometimes. Sometimes, no matter what you do, um, they'll be wrapped up in their own personal issues that they won't allow themselves to see the good in you and what it is that you're trying to do and i think you know i've just realized that you you just try not to try too hard with them you work with the people that i do want to work with you and hopefully that will supersede any negativity around you but you know as i said you know the analogy i draw is you know the business of sport business and sport is exactly the same you know the same things you find in your workplaces you'll find in, in the sports environment constantly you know you, you're constantly battling with with the authorities um, around funding and various other things that happens. Um, you're constantly bat- battling with, with the government around um, the work that you're trying to do in local communities and trying to get funding for that. Um, and, you know, you'll have supporters and fans who you just have to, um, I guess, just recognise that you're just never going to please everybody, you know, and, and some will be on your case, some won't, some will be supportive, some won't support you no matter what you do. But that is the world we live in. Um, and I think I accepted that quite early on in the leadership space, um, you know, that if I wanted to be a leader and I wanted everything that comes with being a leader, then I needed to, you know, accept that there's, you know, with it comes greater responsibility. And this is part of it. It's a lonely place at times. And you hear a lot of leaders talk about that, but it's true mm. because, you, you know, you have to guard. You have to guard yourself quite a lot. Uh, you have to be very careful about who you pick and choose that you speak to. So they don't use it against you. So, you know, finding, you know, as a leader, having a mentor. And, you know, for me, Mervyn King has been a mentor for a very, very long time. He's got no agendas. 
you know he's got there's nothing that i can he can take from me that will benefit him so you know uh, you know those sorts of recognizing mentors i think is hugely important within leadership and i think sometimes you there's a view that if you become a leader you're the finished article Mm. and actually if your mind's open to learning and development then you're never a finished article so you know all these things kind of fall into line in terms of being a leader Uh, and it's a a fantastic place to be because you can influence you can mobilize you can navigate all the great things that you know that can change people's lives change your environment um you know and that's an exciting place to be very well to attract Mervyn King as a mentor. That's uh, quite a yeah. Uh, great, great. What's 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 the you know the biggest thing you've learned from him? Do you think? Interestingly, he, he said to me, he said, with the job that he does, and considering that he, he he was around during the the recession and you know all the issues with banks in sort of two thousand eight, nine, ten, and everything we were going through, he he turned around to me one day and he said, you know what, I've never lost one night's sleep doing this job. And I remember looking at him quizzically and he said, because because he said the day I walked through the doors, I knew that this was a job, a very important one, but it was a job. And then I would not allow myself to get emotionally embroiled in this job. And he, he said, I, I, I walked to work every day from Notting Hill to Threadneedle Street. And he said, that's my thinking time. But he said, I refused to allow this job to consume me. And, um, you know, one thing I found from him is that he was always very measured and very level. And no matter whether he had a good day or a bad day, he was consistent. So I think consistency, I think, is hugely important as a leader. And I learned that from him because when you walk through the doors of your offices or whatever, um, you know, your staff are looking for cues. They look at your eyes, they look at your body language, and they're trying to work out what type of mood you're in, what type of morning you've had. And that will then dictate the type of day they have. Are they going to be on tenter hooks or are they going to feel that they've got lots of freedom because you're in a good space? So no matter what happened, you always said to me when you walk through the doors, be consistent as you were the day before so that they get used to it. And, you know, it allows them to excel in what they do. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that was fantastic advice. Brilliant advice. Isn't mm. Yeah. And do you think and talk, talking to you and uh, we've met, I think this is the third time we've met. Um, but the one thing I, you know, I'd warn to you in terms of you seeing to be a nice guy, you know, as a CEO, you seem to be, um, I think you, you remind me a little bit of some of the feedback I used to get when I used to lead teams, that actually I was, you know, a nice guy, people always enjoyed kind of being around me. Do you think, um, do you think that's a good attribute to, to have? Or do you, I mean, do you always, within the role that you, that you have, are you able to, you know, keep to being a nice guy uh, and be consistent? Or do you have to, you know, maybe sometimes do things that don't quite fit with your values. So. I think I think it is difficult, and and that's one of the challenges I think on a daily basis is that you know no matter what job you do, if it doesn't fit in with your values, then don't do it. You know, who who said that you know good people can't be good leaders? You know, you know there used to be a time when people said unless you were charismatic as a leader, you'd never be a good leader. Mm. But you've had so many quiet leaders, ones who've been effective at what they do. You would never would have thought about that because people used to say, you know, it's all about motivating or rallying the troops around you and getting them excited and energized. Well, actually, people can find different ways to do that. So for me, I, I try and be as consistent as I can. I try and be I try and be human. 
So, you know, you try and have those normal conversations with staff about, you know, the weekends and how's it going and families. And this is what I did over the weekend with my family. And, you know, and I think it's important to almost humanize yourself because, you know, there again, there's a stigma attached that, you know, a leader or the boss is not approachable or is, is on a different sphere or a different level. And, you know, you can't have normal conversations with them. But I think it's also important every now and again that to make tough decisions and make it known that you've made those tough decisions because what you then create is uh, you create some parameters so people will say do you know what he's a good guy he's a fair guy but do you know what Pfft, don't mess with him yeah. because there's another side to him yeah. that he can if he needs to he will make those tough decisions and i think it's important to do that so when i came you know i addressed all the staff very early on and, you know, we, we, we developed a shared vision. We did all the things. And I'm a very big believer in a more sort of enterprise-wise leadership model. So I'm about empowerment. You know, I'm not about, you know, yes, initially I needed to be a bit sort of more transformational in terms of as a leader. But for me, it was about how do I develop a more discreet leadership model I, where I can share the leadership function amongst many people. But I needed to develop the trust and do all of those things. And once you start talking to people about the type of environment you want to create, but also lay down what your expectations are. And the big thing I laid down was around accountability. Mm. And I said, look, I'm accountable for moving this club forward. Hey, and that's absolutely fine. If I, if I don't deliver what I'm, I'm here to deliver, I don't expect to be here. So I think delivering the key messages to staff, I think is massively critical to go, in order to get for them to get to buy in. But once they know that you've got some, uh, you're not afraid to make tough decisions and you do that quite early on, you can still be yourself but also at the back of their minds, they know that, you know, let's not take his, his good values and, and, and the way that he is for granted. Because if we don't deliver, then we know what else is on the other line. Yeah, yeah. Because you have to have to get, you know, to build a team where people are in, get engaged and, uh, and in it together to, you know, to hit this, these objectives, these intentions that you have. And, and you mentioned that uh, your organisation was losing money and it's now on a, and a much better track with your your help, but that's pretty serious. You can't continue like that forever. So, yeah. so actually, that has to be you know be at the fore, doesn't it? Yeah. And um, yes, you all can be nice to each other and supportive and caring, but at the end of the day, no one's going to have a job unless those results yeah. are yeah achieved. And also, I think it happens more in sport than anywhere else. But I think people tend to feel that if they've been involved in sport for a while, they're they're almost owed a job for life. Yes. And it's that kind of mentality. Well, you know, well, what have I done wrong? And, and so, you know, there's a massive re-education piece that I needed to do. And that was to get staff to understand that actually taking responsibility, owning up to mistakes is not an issue. You won't get vilified for it. And actually being accountable is a good thing. Yes. That's what you're getting paid to do. Yes. If you don't deliver what you're getting paid to do, then you're not doing your job. And I think, you know, getting people to understand that, but doing it in the right way, where they didn't feel threatened and, you, and, in, and in fact they actually embraced it I think was really really important but that took time and effort to do that so I, I spent so much time trying to develop the environment the culture uh, around the place where we could get to that stage where there was a level of trust built amongst my, with myself but also with uh, amongst the staff as well yeah. and um, that takes time particularly when you've been in an environment where people have looked over their shoulders you know we'd made £550,000 worth of losses in three years in the last two years, we've made two years of net profit, you know, in the first two years of being in the business. And it's not a miracle. It's just a case of getting people moving the right direction, building a culture 
that empowers people to make decisions, uh, but also for people to, to be accountable for delivery. And people have come and gone because they've not delivered. But, you know, you flush those people out very quickly. Um, so, you know, it, it's important that people see that as well. Mm. So it keeps them on their toes. Mm. Um, you know, and that's certainly what I've tried to do here at the cricket club. I think one of the big learnings for me when I came out of out of corporate and I set up my, my own business was um, was that that, that I've been successful in that environment, um, but I got frustrated a bit with line managers and appraisals and board meetings and kind of finger pointing and all mm. that kind of accountability. Yeah. But what I realised when I was out on my own and didn't have that was those are those are things that actually been my friends. Those things have been the things that had held my performance up. Yeah. And it helped me yeah. to achieve what I'd achieved. Yeah. So I had to go and put all those things back into my own business yes. to be yeah. successful again. Yeah. So I think you have to see those things as friends that are helping you. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know and and, and, and and appraisals and you know performance management, you know, is not just about delivery of KPIs. Yeah. You know, it's it's also about that there's a caring element to those appraisals. So for example, I have something called flash reports right at the top of appraisal appraisal forms where I ask people to rate themselves based on their peers, family and friends, their colleagues and the organization. So they give a rating out of 10 in terms of where they are across each of those, yeah. because I think it's important. Anything with six and below, it becomes a talking point because it's important for me to understand what is going on outside of this workplace for an individual or if there are reservations about where we are as an organization that needs to be addressed and i think that that personal element into appraisal sometimes can be lost and i think you you need to keep people bought into what you're trying to do and i think showing an interest in in them as people remains critical yeah well i'd love to keep on uh, talking about this for a long time we could keep on go- going um, but i just wonder if you've got a final message that you'd like to leave us with um, yeah, I mean, I mean, look from from my point of view, um, I, I'm, I'm thanks, Chris, for firstly saying that you know that uh, you think I'm a nice guy, and and I think certainly that's the one thing that interestingly, when I played professional sport, people said I was too nice. Mm. That's perhaps why I didn't get to where I got to, but it now seems to be a very strong attribute for me in leadership, which is quite interesting because people would say, well, heck, hang on a minute, well, surely that would apply with that, but I think that I've just learned that um, it's it's okay to be strong and tough at times and make those tough decisions. You can't always be liked but it's really important to be respected for what you do and once you lose that aim of wanting to be liked by everybody and your goal becomes to be respected by people you can make those tough decisions a lot easier and, and for me it was never easy to do that but that's certainly a huge lesson for me in leadership thank you well been wonderful talking to you today i've absolutely loved it and, and uh, i've got so much confidence uh, that leicestershire County Cricket Club have got a great CEO leading the business and there's a lot of great people there as well and a lot of great support and people who are supporting the club now and keep coming out, keep supporting them. Let's uh, you know, keep the uh, the business on our upward trajectory and uh, and you know building lots of great entertainment for, for lots of people out there. Um, I just, if you want to find out more about Leicestershire Cricket, go to leicestershireccc.co.uk. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's the best place. Yeah. Um, and I uh, also just want to say now for next week's show, we've got a, from an inspiring man that we've just had. We've got an inspiring lady. We've got Lolly Daskell. She's the CEO of Lead Within, um, whom the Huffington Post described as the most inspirational woman in the world. So wow. I'm looking forward to talking to her. We're going to talk about the leadership gap 
what gets between you and greatness. So this will follow on beautifully from the interview today with uh, Wasim Khan. If you've got any thoughts, feelings on the show, send it to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Um, love to hear from that. I know I'm sure Wasim, I'll pass those on to Wasim as well. I'm sure he'd love your feedback. Um, you know, connect with us all on Twitter and Facebook and all those sorts of things as well. So in the meantime, wish you all a wonderful week. And once again, thanks very much, Wasim Khan. Thank you, Chris. We thank you for listening to the Business Elevation Show. Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more, achieve more. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.